Good evening. I'm Russ Germain, and this is Ideas. Almost all the thinkers who have been recorded have been approaching life from their male experience and their male body and their male perception. And I just think we have to realize that that's true and that we have had very little through recorded time perception into what life is like from the female point of view, from the female experience, from the female body. So I think what really bothers women is the confident assumption through history that once anything has been examined from a male point of view, you have discovered everything that all humans would have to feel or to say or to perceive upon the subject. Throughout recorded history, patriarchy has been the universal norm in what we have called civilized societies. Men have been seen as the quintessential human beings. Those qualities which have been seen as detracting from the cultural glorification of maleness have been projected onto women. The result has been the division of human beings into unequal and incomplete parts. The whole hierarchy of civilized values by which we've tried to live is in many ways rooted in this division. Men have made history, while women have been assigned the frustrating task of making up for it. Tonight in the fourth program of our series, Between Two Ages, we look at some of the ways in which the sexual division of labor has determined our cultural values and practices, and at how this is now changing and must continue to change. The series is prepared and presented by David Cayley. In the last few years, a lot of people have discovered the interesting fact that it is virtually impossible to speak English in a non-sexist way. In language, as in culture, maleness has been the norm. Male experience has been generalized as human experience. And it is certain that as the experience of women is admitted onto an equal footing with that of men in the definition of what is human, culture will undergo profound and beneficial changes. Tonight we will look at some of the cultural changes implied in the feminist revolution which has already begun to alter our society. We begin with the work of Elizabeth Dodson Gray, who has argued in a book called Why the Green Nigger that our flawed attitude towards nature is rooted in the male need to contain and suppress the power of women. She supposes that the whole system of hierarchical thinking which has characterized our religion and more generally our culture derives from the original need of men to rank the primal difference between themselves and women. I would say that for a reason that I don't totally comprehend yet, the male is very into comparing himself with other entities, whether with other males or whether with females or with animals. He's very into ranking. And I don't quite understand all the dynamics of that and whether it's totally true in other cultures, but it seems to me it's very true in our culture. And one of the contentions of my book is that we got into ranking the diversity in existence because males 
felt they had to rank the primal difference between male and female. Rather than simply saying males and females are different, they had to rank it. Now, I suspect that that went back very early in culture to a time when it looked like human life was sort of springing miraculously out of the female. And it wasn't at all clear because of the nine-month lag, really, how much males had to do with that. And I think uh, males were very impressed and depressed <laughs> at the fact that life seemed to come from the female and that the female seemed to be tied in in a way that the males were not with the kind of um, cycles of fertility and newness of life that flowed in the natural world. And it seems to me that patriarchal culture itself came from the male need to build a culture which would put men up and women down which is what I think indeed patriarchal culture understood very simply does. It's simply a culture that, that as, as uh, Margaret Mead said, you know, in, it doesn't matter who, what is done, it matters who does it. And she found, uh, as she went from tribe to tribe, that if the men wove in one culture, it wove cloth, it was high status. If 20 miles away in another tribe, uh, the women wove cloth, it was low status. It depended on who did it. And my intuition is that that kind of setting up a culture which would rank what men did, uh, whatever it was that they did, higher than what women did, was done out of a male need to make themselves feel good at a very early time when I would assume they didn't feel good about who they are. In an influential book entitled The Mermaid and the Minotaur, Dr. Dorothy Dinnerstein, a professor of psychology at Rutgers University, argues that the cultural depreciation of women has its roots in early childhood. Because our first encounter with the world is always an encounter with women, we come to associate with women our ambivalent feelings about our original helplessness. The fact that there's one kind of person, the, the, the female, who presides over the, our initiation into the human condition, the fact that we're ushered from infancy into childhood and into some, at least, intimation of, of what the human condition is, under the auspices of females. That fact gives females a very special status in our life. They're the people that we interact with when we're still helpless and when we're finding out the most important things we ever find out about what's what and what we're in for. That fact that women are associated with the pre-verbal, pre-rational stage of experience means that they also become the focus of attitudes that are rooted primarily in the pre-verbal, pre-rational layer of sentience. That is, there's a, a, a part of oneself which is eternally a child, and it's fairly sealed off from the adult self. It's uh, only, only very gifted people are able to contact the child in themselves easily and reconcile it with the adult in themselves. For most of us, the, the child in the self operates in the dark and, and its influence is not clearly understood by the adult part of a self. So on that pre-rational, pre-verbal layer of experience, women have the status that they originally get from being the enormously powerful nurturers, punishers, teachers, 
bringers of bad news and good news to each of us as we enter human life. Growing up in patriarchy imposes a traumatic change of allegiance on the male child in his early years. To become a man, he must distance himself from women. But this does violence to his real feelings and belies his real dependence. And so in order to fulfill the platonic ideal of maleness, he must repress a whole side of himself. Elizabeth Gray. The male child makes this very early identification as a baby with the major nurturing person who is the mother, and then discovers it somewhere between one and two years of age, I think, that that person is of the opposite sex. And furthermore, in patriarchy, that person, the mother, is very much put down. And it is obvious even to a very small child that the father is, has the power of the culture as he comes home bearing money and the mother is um, staying at home removing the dirt, basically the dirty clothes, the dirty, you know, cleaning the dirty floor, et cetera, et cetera. And so the male child at this point has a real problem because you cannot pattern yourself after someone of the wrong sex. And particularly if your father is not there very much, as the father really is not in our industrial society, is almost always away working, particularly for small children. Um, the, the, the male child then has a problem. How do you become male? And I think the child decides that you become male by becoming not female. And so you distance yourself, you push off from yourself, not only the mother and everything that reminds you of the mother, but unfortunately also all that very early emotional part of you that is very deeply linked to that mother. And I think that this is accounts for what Jungians today talk about the feminine side of the man. I don't think it's the feminine side of the man. I think it's that very early emotional part of the male child that the male has felt that he had to repress and distance himself from in order to be what our culture calls a man, which is not a female. And I think you see this also in the fact that all the way through primary and secondary education and sports, males are coerced by, if they don't measure up, if they're not tough enough on the football field, they're called girls, sissies, you know, um, or, or faggots, you know, uh, which is the implication, once again, not a real man. I mean, it's fascinating to me that we live in a culture in which maleness is not defined by simply possessing a penis. You have to be a man, you have to become a man. You, you aren't simply a man because you have male anatomy. And yet, as you examine it, who else could possibly be a man except someone who has male anatomy? And we make it into a platonic ideal, you see, and then the, the, the boy child growing up is stuck with trying to be, become some strange platonic ideal that we define in these very macho terms, which leaves him the problem of what to do with himself when he feels gentle, loving, tender, frightened, vulnerable, all those things which are very human, but which are labeled feminine, and therefore he can't touch them with a 10-foot pole. We resent their power. Dorothy Dinnerstein. We never outgrow our resentment of having been helpless infants. And the reason we don't have to outgrow it is that we don't have to see that the early parent was a fellow human being and uh, that, that our helplessness in infancy was therefore inevitable. We can blame it somehow on women, and we can resent their bossiness and 
instead of coming to terms inside of ourselves with the fact that we were once helpless, we can be angry and threatened by the power of women, which after all, once we're out of the nursery, if we really understood our own experience, is not an enormous power. But women continue to carry that power for us because they continue to carry the aura of the nursery. What I'm saying is that that we would come to terms with that difficulty. We'd be forced to, and it's not impossible. We do it to some degree anyway. If uh, we didn't have a category of human being on whom to dump the unresolved ambivalence. The rejection of dependence conditions our attitudes very deeply. This fact is confirmed by the fanatical way in which we project independence as a cultural ideal. At all costs, we must not be seen to be helpless. Elizabeth Gray. You can see this, I think, in the incredible way the phrase pitiful, helpless giant floats through our foreign policy concerns because pitiful, helpless giant evokes the image of being a baby, of being dependent. And that is something that no red-blooded American male can possibly admit that he is. And so consequently, I think you, you get into these incredible frenetic effects never to be dependent, number one. You reject any person who you feel dependent upon like you were upon mother. And I think this accounts for the fact that the American male, at least, is very intent upon making sure that the female he relates to, i.e. wife or lover, is nurturing to him but from a position of no power. It's all right to take care of his dirty clothes and fix him his meals and groom him very much the way mother did and be his sort of supportive contact, but you must do that from a position of no power because mother did it from a position of power and the child was dependent and I'm clear the male child is determined never to be dependent. And I think then the implications for the environment are that we cannot admit that we are dependent on the environment and so we must say we are ruler of creation. We have we've been given dominion, which is what our Judeo-Christian tradition says. You know, we must say that we are managing the earth, which is manifestly not true. And one of the things that I do to try to challenge this when I do my lecture, and I have a picture of a of um, a fetus inside the placenta, and I say that it seems to me that I think it is accurate to say that we are within the biosphere of planet Earth, like the fetus in the placenta. And this just absolutely drives men crazy when I say it. I mean, good men who want, for example, in the religious tradition, who want to say we must be better stewards of the earth, they must say we are managing the earth. The connection between women and nature is deeply imbued in our language and our thought. We make this connection, Dorothy Dinnerstein argues, because we identify nature with the primal parent, who is always, so far, a woman. She seems both more and less than human to us, and so we have great difficulty in coming to terms with her simply as a fellow human being. Woman is the first piece of nature we encounter before we even sense the separateness between persons and the rest of the natural order. We're interacting with a woman. She embodies both what's alluring about nature and also what's assaultive, frightening, frustrating. I drew on Melanie Klein's thinking a lot to sketch in that picture of our mixture of, our inevitable mixture of what Klein calls envy and gratitude, uh, what I would call uh, a mixture of uncontrollable angry greed and affirmative, grateful wish to nurture in return.
those two sets of feelings toward the original caretaker are feelings that we would inevitably have. But if there were not two categories of person, uh, male and female, we would be forced to outgrow those feelings in order to preserve the sense that anybody is at all is just an ordinary human being like ourselves. So what I talked about in that chapter was how the I-ness of a woman, her central existence with a core of uh, subjective awareness and a sense of identity and personal fate, is denied. That is, it's very hard for us to see the first parent as a fellow human being. And the fact that we have two genders, only one of which takes care of early life, makes it possible for us to evade that developmental task. One of the roots of our ecological crisis is the polarity which we set between nature and culture. Nature is other than ourselves, and because culture reflects what is male, what is other than culture must be female. Elizabeth Gray. Because men dominate the culture, they image the culture as masculine. And then they image that which is other than human culture, which is the natural surround, as feminine. And therefore, they tend to treat um, that environment um, and nature which they image as woman the way they treat women. For example, when um, nature overwhelms us in a snowstorm or in a hurricane or an exploding volcano or something, we always say, Mother Earth zaps us again. And this is the mother that has power over us. But then equally, we want to um, then say also that, that Earth or nature is the compliant victim the way the docile woman in patriarchal culture is supposed to be. So we name resources that we have not dug up out of the ground virgin resources. And when we say when we dig them up, we don't make love to these virgins, we exploit them. We have put this um, this feminine imaging upon the earth, and it's it's not true. I mean, the earth is not any more feminine than I mean, rocks are not feminine. The soil is not feminine. It is itself. Part of the contentions of my book is that we are so into ranking diversity in the creation which we're dealing with that we cannot appreciate diversity for what it is. We've never appreciated women for what they are. We've been so busy in patriarchal culture saying they're below men. And equally, we've been unable to deal with the differences between white and black and between civilized and so-called primitives. And equally, all we want to say about the animals and the rest of nature is that it is subhuman. We just simply want to say we are above it and it is below us. And we are not able to really deal with what animals are in themselves, what the natural cycles of the biosphere are in themselves, what the, the soil is of itself. Now, you see, we cannot really seem to get a hold on what things are in themselves, just the way males can really have difficulty dealing with what women are really in themselves, because we've been so into ranking diversity rather than appreciating it and honoring it. Oh. 
This is a song that John Lennon wrote for his son Sean. It seems to me to embody the kind of revaluation of maleness in both father and son that is necessary if we are ever to get outside the box of sexual stereotypes. In the five years before his death, Lennon stayed home with his son. This is obviously not a possibility for everyone. Lennon by this time was an extremely wealthy man. But I think nonetheless that in giving his relationship with his son the importance that he did, he was acting as a sort of cultural exemplar. Dorothy Dinnerstein has argued that the isolation of men from the nurturing of children is a major source of our cultural malaise, not just because it distorts our view of women, but also because it crucially limits the life experience of men. It follows from this that unless men become equals in the care of children, we will never outgrow what Dinnerstein sees as our cultural neurosis. Women are already rightly rejecting their exclusive responsibility for child care. We cannot go back. But how we go forward, I think, will depend on how men respond to this challenge. If men join together with women in recognizing their responsibility for child care, then it may become possible to create a situation in which the world of work and the world of the family are no longer sealed off from each other. I do not believe that there is an institutional solution to this problem. Institutional child care from early childhood on potentially extends alienation even deeper into our lives. It simply sloughs the problem off onto children and breaks up their bonding with their parents in often traumatic ways. We desperately need new, flexible arrangements in which the needs of men, women, and children are addressed as a whole. But I do not think we can even begin to realistically talk about this until men first recognize that this is their problem too. A second point which I think needs to be made concerns the nurturance of male children. If culture is a surrogate independence for the dependent male, as Elizabeth Gray argues, this may be partly the result of a real as well as an imagined insecurity on the part of the male. Joseph Chilton Pierce, in his book Magical Child, has argued that the male is in many ways more vulnerable than the female. This shows in the higher death rate for male children and in the greater incidence of spontaneous abortion, prematurity, autism, and other such problems. The production of boys would seem to involve a greater inherent risk than the production of girls. The genetic structure of the male supplies at least a metaphor for this, if not an actual biological determinism. The X chromosome construction of the female seems to be a kind of baseline, while the completion of the XY chromosome construction of the male involves additional risk. The conclusion to be drawn from this, I think, is that males may need more nurturance than females, and Pierce is able to cite a number of studies which seem to bear this out. What happens, in fact, is frequently the opposite. The male is taught to reject nurturance, often by his father. And this, I think, is where the image of the nurturant male, which we see in John Lennon's relation to his son, becomes important. Again, it is the involvement of men with their children which has the possibility to break the impasse in which we find ourselves.
In the last 15 years, a distinct feminist theology has emerged to challenge patriarchal religion and to point out the ways in which it has buttressed patriarchal culture. Feminist critics of religion have come to see in Christianity and other world religions structures of thought and imagination deeply imbued with patriarchal ideas. Shelley Douglas is a member of the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action, established to oppose the deployment of the Trident Missile System in the United States. She argues that a feminist spirituality must completely revise the received form of religion. As I understand a feminist spiritual awareness, it would be a redefinition of most of the kinds of religious terms that we've used so far. It would mean no longer looking at a God who is a stern or even a loving father who is outside of us and somewhere up there and kind of controls what we do and lays down the law, um, and a, a, basically a person who interacts in human history in, in ways that are very authoritarian. I think it would be more of a sense of something that comes, almost comes from beneath and moves through human beings and with which we can be in step if we want to be. I think a lot of the behaviors that came out of people who were sincere, um, almost mystical Christians would be very similar to the behaviors that would come out of a feminist spirituality. And probably a lot of the feelings and, and intuitions would be very similar, but the language and the understanding of them will have to change. In her book, The Changing of the Gods, Naomi Goldenberg, who teaches in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Ottawa, has argued that no feminist can save God. For her, God is essentially a patriarchal notion, the image of male authority projected outside ourselves. With the destruction of this external authority, she feels that it can only be mystifying to continue to talk about God. The idea of an external figure that uh, is out there and protecting and judging is probably the essence of uh, a God idea, and that once you take away the patriarchal notion of it, any concept of divinity becomes more inward. And although you might have, um, you might still maintain images of uh, gods, goddesses, and things like that, they wouldn't be seen as such an external kind of force in that way. An idea of a supernatural being in any form, like, like God, who takes care of things, or like even a goddess who takes care of things, seen in, uh, in that way, is a lie that we tell ourselves, and it doesn't help us advance uh, society in, uh, in more human directions. It just continues uh, a dishonesty that we've just perpetuated for too long. And uh, that's why I would want, you know, a feminist position to be an atheistic position to say, well, look, we're human beings. Let's figure out what we need as human beings, what we can give each other as human beings, and uh, be a little more honest, much more honest about our existence. I think um, false notions about our own grandeur being uh, children of some supernatural force uh, really doesn't do us any good. Things religious should be always considered as things internal, and uh, that uh, perhaps the name religion should be dropped uh, entirely, because it conjures the, these ideas of, uh, of fictional things that exist outside ourselves and that we can depend on for some kind of protection. For Naomi Goldenberg, 
the projection of an external divinity implicitly devalues both ourselves and our environment. We cannot merge our consciousness with the natural processes of which we are a part, nor understand the full scope of these processes while we cling to the idea that we have a destiny apart from all this. When we start getting beyond the environment, beyond human beings, uh, we start to somehow devalue the environment and human beings. And I think that's what's happened in the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, that the beyond gets to be more important than what's here. And uh, we somehow want to escape from, uh, from this stuff. And I don't think so. I think we should be embracing it. And that our theories, by attesting to its reality, uh, will be uh, going along with that, uh, that current, will be helping us embrace it. The environment is it. That whale out there, that's it. We better save it. <laughs> and that's what I would hope that somehow the women's movement is involved in, is involved in in looking at the realities of human life, animal life, plant life, life on this planet, and and saying, look, we've got to we've got to save these things. Let's stop dying for higher causes. The stuff is right here. Women have always stood for the uh, the more mundane kind of reality. They're closer to the everyday. They're um, perhaps because of of the fact that they give birth to children, because they've always cared for children, they're uh, more aware of honestly what what life needs, and that men uh, in their positions heretofore of being separate from the uh, reality of nurturing life have, uh, have created ideologies that devalue that life in so many ways. And, and that's why I would hope that the women's movement would be uh, a movement back to earth. A lot of women's religious sense is very deeply tied in with nature. Elizabeth Gray. And this is something that has really not been a part of our Judeo-Christian heritage at all. As a matter of fact, any of this kind of um, religious thinking and feeling about nature has been really repressed. I mean, it's called romantic, it's called, um, you know, kind of uh, pre-Christian and stuff like that. And, And I think that women are beginning to say, look, that has religious validity and I have certain intuitive feelings of connection with nature. Now, that to me does not say that nature is feminine, but that women, perhaps because of the menstrual cycles which throw through their bodies, perhaps because they are more deeply in touch with their bodies because of their child-rearing and things, have certain qualities, I think, of almost a visionary nature. Like any movement for social change, feminism faces the classic dilemma, reform or revolution. The assimilation of women into the existing order or the overturning of this order to make a more human world for both men and women. Although the predominant demand of feminism has been equality, there has always been an underlying question, equality on whose terms. Barbara Ehrenreich is the co-author with Deirdre English of a book called For Her Own Good, in which she takes up this question. I think that feminism is predominantly is a a rationalist kind of feminism that says, look, there are no real reasons for excluding women 
um, from professions, from excluding them from crafts, from excluding them from full participation. And feminism has, by and large, set as its major goal breaking down those barriers, just as feminists in the 19th century, uh, just as Charlotte Perkins Gilman would have said, that that's what we have to do, is have equality within this outer world uh, which has been dominated by men. We want to break down the segregation of life into two spheres that we want to be able to enter uh, into economic life, too. There's another theme, though, that enters into feminism in our period, and that is one which is somewhat more radical, uh, somewhat more probing and questioning, that says, um, well, is that really all we want? Uh, is that enough? Are we simply asking to be allowed to be integrated or assimilated into this, this world men have created? Or is there some more, more basic changes we would want in society? So that's, that's how I would put it now. I think, that, of course, the predominant theme is let us in, give us equality, and it's more of an undertone, a, a radical undertone that says, what is this all about anyway? Are the things men have been doing all along really all that worthwhile anyway. Barbara Ehrenreich draws a distinction between a rationalist feminism which demands participation in the present order and a more radical feminism which puts this order itself in question. This distinction becomes important as feminism has to confront a very substantial backlash from those who feel that it threatens the moral value of the family by asserting the individual rights of women. The only way this charge can be answered is by the projection of a vision in which the moral values now segregated in the home are seen to become transcendent public priorities and no longer the exclusive business of women. This vision of a society organized around human needs is implicit in feminism, says Barbara Ehrenreich, but in recent years it has tended to be eclipsed. I think the moral vision of, of feminism has been misrepresented. Right now we're faced with a, a very strong anti-feminist movement or movements in this country which take a moral, uh, appropriate to themselves the word morality. We have a moral majority, for example, uh, saying that feminism is immoral, that it's the, the traditional values of the home and the family that we have to go back to. And there are even left-wingers who will go along with that to a, a certain extent um, and say, yes, look, the, the home, after all, is the only place in our uh, society where the deeply human values of love, of affection, of valuing people for themselves and not for what they can do or perform, it's the only place where those values can be preserved. So we have that kind of argument against feminism coming from both right and left. And I think that feminism, and of course, you know, it's hard to, to speak for it, and there are many streams, and there are many disagreements, and there are all kinds of things, but the, the a radical kind of feminism says, look what we're about is not simply individualism, not simply a chance to assimilate into uh a man-made world, a competitive world, which does not have those kinds of human values. But we would like to remake the world, and we'd like the kinds of values which have been segregated off, marginalized into the homes, insofar as they really are 
anyway, and that's debatable, uh, to become the kinds of values we base our society on, a value of, of people as people for themselves, not simply um, for what they can produce or consume and so on. So I think feminism does have a, a radical moral vision and thrust. But as I said, that's been very severely eclipsed by a media imagery that portrays feminism as not much more than a self-improvement program for individual middle-class women. This very partial assimilation of feminism by the existing order poses new problems. The feminism which appears in the distorting mirror of capitalism fulfills only the individual aspirations of a minority of women, but it does represent a very marked change in the cultural imagery by which women are portrayed. Barbara Ehrenreich. What happened, particularly in the 70s, is that you begin to get a complete change in away from that domestic ideal. And I, I have to I have to admit that this sort of crept up on Deirdre English and myself as we were working on the book. Now here we were working on a book tracing this tremendous amount of advice aimed at keeping women fully domestic. That was our whole focus. I think we sort of suddenly looked around us and said, wait a minute, that's not even what's happening anymore. So there we were. We started to uh, pay attention what was go to what was going on right then in 1975-1976 and pretty clearly by that time the ideal the cultural ideal for what a woman should be was no longer the suburban housewife mother of three that I was mentioning before that uh, a new cultural ideal had appeared in the medium media and that was um, the working woman the career woman who had been I guess, gotten her first boost from Helen Gurley Brown way back in 1962. So we have a, we had changed quite dramatically. If you look in the magazines, if you look on television, what you see as the successful woman, the ideal woman is not likely to be that full-time housewife, but to be um, a rising young managerial woman with a skirted suit and an attache case and um, appointments to meet. Probably she, possibly she's also married and has a family, but um, she balances that all somehow. Uh, it's a superwoman image in a way. It's a woman who's going to have the best of all worlds. It's an affluent image. What disturbs me is that in many ways this began to uh, appear, or began to be mixed up in people's minds and in the media with what feminism had been about. Uh, that this was all that we wanted, to go into those same positions as men, to make ourselves over to be more like men and to, to be successful on their terms. I just read in the uh, New York Times yesterday an article about a management training seminar for women where the uh, advice was given to the aspiring female managers that, that, among other things, you have to learn to drop those friends of yours who might be, quote, and this is the words used, unsuccessful turkeys. That's what she said, because they're just a drag on your career. We have to, um, you have to learn to want to discard people at whatever is necessary to advance yourself. Now, of course, that kind of thing completely flies in the face of 
feminist ideas of sisterhood and support for each other and collectivity. But I think that's very much the ideology which has replaced the old domestic one. You said that this was increasingly confused with feminism. Is there a sense in which feminists were themselves confused or at least had a difficulty in addressing this new phenomenon? I think feminists themselves were confused uh, to an extent. Partly, this change in the media image of, of women was something welcome. I mean, it, it does, even if it's symbolic, mean something to have women on television as TV anchor persons and to see images of successful women where success is in strictly male terms. I think, you know, we, when we saw that at first, it looked, it looked good, and it's important that children see that. But feminism always had sort of two, two themes. One was um, individualistic. Women had saying women have been submerged for so long in the family, in giving to others, taking care of others. We've got to break with that. Uh, everyone has to find her own individuality to express herself. That was one theme, and I'm talking about the radical feminism of the late 60s and early 70s. But the other theme, which is in a way almost contradictory, was said, said well, we as women face um, institutionalized barriers. We have been oppressed as a class of people. And the only way to fight back is to organize, to be together as women, to have solidarity as women. Now, I think that the first theme was easier to integrate into a capitalist society. Say, okay, women too, you, a few women anyway, will, can get in, can make it. The second theme about women having solidarity across class lines, um, fighting together for very basic changes in society, is not something that is easily assimilated into our society and econo economic system. And that was the one that got dropped on by the wayside. Not, I would say, by feminists themselves, but by, in this sort of media reformulation of what feminism was about. Despite this media reformulation of feminism, and despite the incorporation of more women into the lower echelons of the elite, feminism retains its revolutionary implications. Shelley Douglas of the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action argues that the true fulfillment of feminism can only be accomplished through radical social change. It's very difficult to imagine a system where human beings will have equal opportunities to develop and to grow, which is what I would define as a feminist system, without also imagining the kind of a system where we do not have large corporations with heavy capital investments controlling sort of robot-like production. The sorts of things that we look to are decentralization of the economy and of government, low uh, technology, kinds of economic development and political development that would be uh, putting human interests and human needs first, certainly before any uh, military hardware kinds of needs, and that would be very sensitive to the cycles and the needs and the growth of the environment in order to preserve it. One of the big questions before feminism right now is do we want in fact, to have a few women in positions like uh, generalships and, and corporate executiveships, do we want an equal piece of the existing pie, or do we want to change the whole thing? 
and create a different kind of society. People are not debating that question enough. I see, um, as particularly with the issue, say, of the draft right now, uh, people are spending too much time arguing about whether or not women would be good combat soldiers and not arguing enough about the whole issue of whether there should be a draft and whether there should be a military. And the issue is even less conscious in the other areas, the more economic areas of, of co-optation. The contradiction between feminism and the existing order is also underscored by the fact of the growing number of women who are poor. Capitalism, says Barbara Ehrenreich, remains the obstacle to further progress. I would say flat out that there is not much of a chance for, for women to survive, advance on what, you know, whether, whether in, a, in more narrow terms, economically or in a more broad visionary way, within a capitalist society or within the kind of capitalist society we now have. I mean, that's a very pressing thing that I think we have to take account of before leaping to more visionary futures is that what has been happening to women economically in the last 10 years is that increasingly the women, women are poor and the poor are women, despite all those images of successful executive women. What's been happening is what some economists have called the feminization of poverty. We find ourselves as a, a secondary labor market, which is really being ground down, ground down to the margin of existence. So that there is the very urgent problem that it's, it's hard to even organize, to think of how we organize and renew the feminist movement when more and more women find themselves submerged by economic difficulties. Feminism is ultimately a vision of human wholeness. It is in this vision of wholeness that Shelley Douglas finds the connection between feminism and nonviolence. Nonviolence does not replace the conditioned aggressiveness of men with the conditioned passivity of women. It looks beyond this polarity to project an ideal of self-completion and self-sufficiency which is seen as the condition for successful political action. For Shelley Douglas, it was just this internal balance that was most lacking in the social movements of the 1960s. What happened in the 60s was that the movement embodied all of the sort of macho traits that were also being embodied in the army in Vietnam. And we simply had a different way of trying to be macho. Uh, we tried to prove, or the men at least tried to prove their manhood by doing heavier actions and going to jail for longer periods of time and sort of being more radical than anybody else. I think that that still happens to some extent in almost every movement for peace and justice today because we haven't really outgrown that acculturation. But movements that are sensitive to the fact that it's a problem will work in the opposite direction to try and de-emphasize that kind of competition and dominance and will develop process within their meetings to make sure that they're more egalitarian. Uh, we'll be more careful about who does how much of the publicity, who, who does most of the actions, what sorts of actions we choose, um, and why we're choosing them, and with what kinds of attitudes we're doing them. What's happened in the past has been in the nonviolent movement, women have been seen as naturally nonviolent, that women simply are not violent people. And I, that's a false stereotype that comes from the way we're brought up.
Uh, we are brought up to be less overtly violent and less physically violent, although we are given a good training in how to be psychologically violent. What we find in the movement right now is men trying to become more feminine, if you want to accept that term, and women uh, grappling with the issue of can you be a feminist and a woman and still be working toward nonviolence. And I think the, the answer to that lies in Gandhi's definition of nonviolence as something that's used only by extremely strong people, and that what he calls nonviolence of the weak is not, in fact, nonviolence at all, but is a form of passive aggression. He felt about home rule that it made no sense to have home rule on the political level to have Indians governing India unless each Indian person was self-governing and was independent and self-sufficient and able from that base of strength in him or herself to form a union with other Indians. And we, we feel something of the same, that human beings need to be whole in themselves before they can form a union with other people in order to move. The connection between feminism and nonviolence, which Shelley Douglas is making in her work against the Trident missile system, mirrors the connection between feminism and ecology, which Elizabeth Gray has made. To be nonviolent, and to establish an ecological harmony between humanity and its planetary environment, requires that we be whole in ourselves. And one precondition for this wholeness is an end to the segmentation of human personality by sexual stereotypes. The awakening of women, in Elizabeth Gray's vision, leads on to an awareness of the interconnectedness of all life. Part of the new thing that's being built is what I call a whole system ethics. We come to see that we have to make decisions that, that are uh, all win for every part of the system, including the future, which means the environment and, and all humans, including those who are starving on other sides of the world. Because if we don't, the other parts of the system that we make um, losing decisions for will get back to us like a boomerang and destroy us because we need to realize that our self-interest in an interconnected whole system cannot be separated from the self-interest of the other parts of the system. So I see one of the great debates of the 80s is going to be between those who say, no, in a time like this, you've got to, you know, you've got to grab it and just, you know, hurt other people. And the, and I see most of the people who are talking about a new planetary consciousness saying, no, that's not true. We really can build a kind of new utopia, you know, on Earth if we do it right, if we take all the other parts of the system into consideration.
Susan Osborne, accompanied by the Paul Winter Consort. On Ideas Tonight, the fourth program in our series, Between Two Ages. Heard in the program were Elizabeth Dodson Gray, Dorothy Dinnerstein, Shelley Douglas, Naomi Goldenberg, and Barbara Ehrenreich. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Technician, Brian Wood. Producer, Bernie Looked. A reading list for this series is available. If you would like one, please write us. Our address is Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. Once again, that's Ideas, Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Tomorrow night, The Political Economy of Energy. I'm Russ Germain. Good night. Please,